This can be scrutinized, the scriptures I'm holding up, can be scrutinized and held to tests and, and to see if it's really from God. And you can have confidence that the scriptures over all of the scrutiny over all of the years holds to the test that it's God's inspired words for direction for how life makes sense. Welcome to the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Garrick Bailey. In each episode of this serious but light-hearted podcast, Timothy Paul Jones and I explore evidences for the truth of Christianity. And along the way, we even talk about movies, music, and culture. If you're interested in supporting this podcast and receiving shirts, mugs, and more, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Apologetics Podcast, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. Welcome to this episode of the Apologetics Podcast. We have a great episode lined up for today with Dan Kimball. Dan Kimball is here to talk about his book, How Not to Read the Bible. Dan Kimball was one of the founders of Vintage Faith Church in California. He has a master's degree from Western Seminary, a doctorate from George Fox University. And in addition to serving on the staff of Vintage Faith Church, he's also a faculty member at Western Seminary. But before we jump into our great discussion with Dan for today, we have to go into battle. Yes, folks, as always, it is time for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of Church History. I've got one that it's going to be difficult for Garrick to defeat. This is something from the 15th century. It is a living thing. What I have from the 15th century is Antonello, the pet trout. Yes, <laughs> that is a real thing from church history. Antonello, the pet trout. Let me tell you about Antonello, the pet trout. Francis of Paola. He was a guy in the 15th century. He died in 1507, about 10 years before the 95 Theses. He was an Italian hermit, and he started this order called the Hermits of St. Francis of Assisi, and they are vegetarian friars, not friars of vegetables, but they are vegetarian friars. I'm not making this up. So he loved animals, and he had a pet trout named Antonello. Now, not only did Francis of Paola have a pet trout named Antonello, one time the other monks accidentally killed Antonello for food. And so they were, the friars were frying Antonello. <laughs> and so this is not his vegetarian order. This is some of the other monks. And so the friars were frying his trout and he reached in, got Antonello the pet trout. And according to legend, he raised the trout from the dead. Yes, you've got a trout resurrection reported in the 15th century. Now, as we've talked about before, we are Reformed Protestants. We are not saying that we believe all the things that we read in church history. There are many things that we don't believe, but this is uh, something that's reported in the 15th century. Francis of Paola and his pet trout, Antonello, whom he raised from the dead. That's that's a good time. <laughs> it's a good time. Not going to be tough to defeat this round, though, Timothy, because... 
What I bring with me today is an artifact known as the Spear of Destiny, also known as the Lance of Longinus or the Holy Lance or the Holy Spear. And it is the weapon that the Roman soldier plunged into the side of Jesus, our Lord, during the crucifixion. Now, you might be asking, everyone already knows that this is the clear winner, but there's still more to say about the Holy Lance. Some call it the Lance of Longinus, why you might ask, uh, and that's because that was the name that was given to the unnamed soldier of the Gospels about three to four hundred years later in an apocryphal work called the Gospel of Nicodemus. Some legends, we won't get into this, but some legends name Longinus as the first Christian, the first Christian uh, ever. He's he's ended up being sainted by the Roman Catholic Church and is recognized as a saint by the Eastern Orthodox Church, but that's a whole nother episode. This artifact is often called the Spear of Destiny because it supposedly gives its owner great power, including, this is kind of big, including the ability to hold the fate of the world in their hands, like the Infinity Gauntlet, right? Like Infinity Gauntlet, Spear of Destiny. Bring uh, of power. Both, that's yes. right. Bring of power. If you had both, <laughs> then that's a, that'd, be a bit, that'd be a big win. A number of major relics claim to either be the spear or, or parts of the spear. So anyways, the first historical reference to a lance of any sort is actually in was in like 570. A relic described as the Holy Lance is in Rome, preserved beneath the St. Peter's Basilica, but the Roman Catholic Church makes no claim to its authenticity, but they do have it. But here's the thing, with Antonello, Antonello comes back to life. So if we get Francis of Paola and Antonello, then you just take your Spear of Destiny, plunge it into Antonello, and Francis just brings him back again. I mean, it's just like coming back, back and back and back. Sure, but I'll just continue to spear him. And if it's true that I hold the destiny, the fate of the world in my hands, then that would include Antonello. And one would say with a snap of the fingers, you know, Antonello would cease to exist, like could not be resurrected. I mean, really, the spear is almost undefeatable. Almost. Well, with that sad defeat of Antonello, with that sad destruction of Antonello, that brings us to a much happier time in this particular episode, which is this time with Dan Kimball, and to talk about his book, How Not to Read the Bible. But of course, there's a question we have to ask before we get to the book, and it's a question we ask every guest, and it's if you could be a part of any rock band in history, what band would it be and what would you be doing in that particular band, Dan? Well, uh, I'm a drummer, so I still drum. So I was a drummer in a band for many, many years. So in that way, my instrument of choice would be drums. <laughs> it's a tough question. I think you said rock band. If my first choice would be jazz big band, I'd like to be playing with Benny Goodman drums and the Benny Goodman Orchestra during their heyday would probably be number one choice. And second, 
I think would be The Clash in the late 70s, early 80s, time period of The Clash, because they were such a great band, though I would have to sit out a few songs lyrically. I think I'd say like, all right, I'm going to go off the stage right now and you can do the song and then I'll come back after. But I think the music and drumming, it was those would be the two. The winds of fear Wake away the sickness The message on the tablet Was valium The planet formed That golden cross, Lord I see you on The holy cross road After all this time Do you believe in Jesus? After all these drugs Right. So what is your favorite drummer? I just am curious on that. What is your favorite drummer? You're a drummer. You actually active in that. And what is your favorite drummer? Would you say jazz or rock, whatever it may be? I'd say overall, my favorite drummer is Gene Krupa. I have a signed photograph of him hanging up beside my drums. So I'd say he was probably the drummer that I listened to a lot. And I want to give credit to Danny Serafin of Chicago, but the early, early Chicago. Chicago is two bands, right? So like the early albums of Chicago are jazz rock. And I would say Danny Serafin, that drummer, is still alive and he still plays. And so he'd be another great influence I learned under as a kid. talk about your book, How Not to Read the Bible, which the full title of the book is How Not to Read the Bible, Making Sense of the Anti-Woman, Anti-Science, Pro-Violence, Pro-Slavery, and Other Crazy-Sounding Parts of Scripture, which I just love that title. We're almost at the end of the program now after the title, but we (laughs) love that title. (laughs) That is a subtitle. (laughs) It is a great subtitle. But it's worked because the subtitle brings attention, just like we just got for the length and what's words. It's like one of those great subtitles that, you know, you used to read in like the old English 17th century theological works with those page long subtitles. So in this particular book, you seem to think that theology and apologetics isn't just for professionals, professional theologians, professional apologists. So Let's start off with just talking about why, in your mind, is apologetics more relevant than ever for ordinary people today? Yeah, I think, I mean, apologetics has always been important, but I don't think it's optional anymore because there is, I mean, I I always think of Judges chapter 2, when it says, after that whole generation grew up, another generation grew up that neither knew the Lord nor what he had done. And then people turn to other things. I really believe, if you were to know me, I'm not a hyper crisis person who gets over-exaggerated with things, but I really believe we are at a crisis of biblical understanding by younger Christians and older Christians too. And because of that, we are being bombarded on TikTok and other places with theology. It's not just fun little videos of them dancing around. We're teaching theology through all of this And with so many people that don't know the scriptures now being bombarded, and that's not an overstatement, with theological opinions, apologetics to respond to these is critical. And I think that's underneath why we're we're seeing so many get confused about faith or believing things that aren't correct or believing in a false gospel. 
and they don't even know it. The word deceived, I think, is what I keep thinking of over and over. And people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. That's what the word is. So I think it's urgent, like it's a non-negotiable urgent. Any walking, breathing Christian needs to be thinking about apologetics. And if a church is not focused on this, I think that it's very dangerous because we have a responsibility for teaching it. I've always believed in it, but there's a crisis now that I don't think it's optional. You start your book with a prelude entitled Becoming an Atheist by Reading the Bible. Could you talk a little bit about that? Like, how does that work? How on earth could reading God's Word cause anyone to stop believing in God? Yeah, again, I mean, one of it, there's a, a mantra that you'll see in the now, when I say atheist, 99% are just kind, loving atheists that leave Christians alone and just are very loving and wonderful in that way. I want them to know Jesus. But then there's the 1% that are the activists, you know, the activists who are intentionally, publicly trying to disprove faith. And one of their mantras is, read the Bible, Christians, because if you read it, you couldn't possibly believe and you're seeing this kind of as a almost an evangelistic approach of if Christians really read the Bible and then they see what's in it because they've never read it before, there's no way they would believe in a God who allegedly advocates slavery and is anti-women and is so violent. You've only heard the nice verses about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount and those things. When you really see what's in your Bible, there's no way you could possibly believe. And sadly, what's happening is it's true. Like there are younger people, especially being caught off guard and not knowing what to do with these things. Most of their parents, even if they're Christians, have not yet quite understood it. I hear this over and over. I asked my mom and my dad. They didn't even know it was in there. And so it's backing up this reinforcement of the Bible when you look at it. There's a website called evilbible.com. And I hear that come up often. It just catalogs all of the allegedly evil verses. So that's why, and when you go on TikTok and type in exvangelical, generally you'll hear bad stories about trauma in the church and that stuff. But then there's always, I don't know, God was so violent and he was pro-slavery. So that's what's happening. And that's why I wrote the book. It was a response to like these repetitive things that are happening at a pretty massive rate if we start paying attention. Now, you've got one section in the book, which I just love the title of this, Never Read a Bible Verse or You'll Have to Believe in Magical Unicorns, which I, I'll admit, I kind of want to believe in, in magical <laughs> yeah, unicorns, as well as phoenixes, right. with this ongoing discussion on the podcast. We really want phoenixes to be real. I also want magical unicorns to be real, but I don't actually believe in them. But what do you mean when you talk about, you say, never read just a Bible verse or you'll have to believe in magical unicorns? What are you getting at right there? Yeah, well, part of this, and I, and in many ways, this is kind of the church's overall, I mean, not all churches, but a lot of churches' fault about not teaching basic Bible study methods to people in the churches. And we have been guilty of extracting Bible verses and maybe giving a whole sermon on the verse, and even with good meanings, often it's you use the Bible verse to springboard to uh, things that might be okay, but they're not what this verse says. So we have not quite taught good Bible study methods in the churches. So you have Bible verses that are then used. And what's happening now is that the atheists, the activist atheists and others, are seeing Bible verses ripped out by themselves with clever graphics and or an explanation. So they're using Bible verses 
out of context to then try to disprove the faith. But we have done the same with the good Bible verses. So that's what I'm trying to say. And never read a Bible verse was a phrase that the apologist Greg Kokel came up with. And it's always, always, most of these problems are solved when you pull it out and then study it in context, the whole book, the whole chapter, put in basic Bible study methods, principles into studying it. But we have not taught people to do that. So never read a Bible verse is never just look at one in isolation. You almost can make it mean anything. It's a good point. And I, the reason I want to highlight that is because one of the things I've said over and over recently is much of apologetics has become hermeneutics. And it didn't used to be that way necessarily. It maybe should have always been that way, but there's a large part now of apologetics that is hermeneutics because of the way that people are using it. But you're right. We've misused it as well. They're reciprocating, but on the other side, and we have to deal with it on both sides of that. Yeah, well, back to the unicorn, the question of the unicorns, the reason that's in there, and this is this is why I feel like alarmed and urgent. I have a, a non-Christian barber. He's very vocal. He's not like an anti-Christian. He's just non-Christian, thinks it's silly and fabricates things. And then one day I go in there and he's, he asks me about, I didn't know that you believed unicorns still exist. And I'm like, I had not, not known this before. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, I've seen it online. And because it's online, TikTok, Pinterest, different places they put up memes. And sure enough, I didn't know how to answer him. And then I did look up when I went back and there's Bible verses with like, you know, Numbers 23, 22 and others that'll say unicorns, the word unicorn. So it's a Bible quote with the word unicorn in it, the verse. They'll have a nice image of a unicorn and then underneath it's a mocking. Know your Bible, like Christians, you believe in unicorns. Now you're seeing the Bible verse, but this is an easy one to answer. Because the word unicorn was the English translation that was used in the 1611 King James Version. They didn't know what other word to use. In most translations today, it's a wild oxen because there was a prominent one-horned wild oxen back at that time. So that's probably what they were talking about. But then when they use the word unicorn in the older translations, then it comes to our mind, like, you know, the fantasy, magical unicorns, and then it gets mocked. But there's a Bible verse slapped with a graphic and my non-Christian barber, who is not out searching for these things, sees it. That's the alarming part. So it's just seeped so much into access of pop culture. And that's why the unicorns. I didn't realize that. And there's lots of funny things online about unicorns in the Bible. That's why there's a graphic. It's a unicorn on the shore, shoreline. And you see Noah's Ark floating away. And they say <laughs> something like, I thought it was leaving at five o'clock or something like that. That explains why we don't have them today. But you'll see stuff like that, understandably. How should we respond? So we read the entire subtitle earlier. What do you say about the Christian's response when confronted with the thought, the the accusation, the charge that that the Bible is sexist or the Bible is racist, which is a has always been a very serious charge but does take on a kind of a certain different intensity to it in kind of today's culture. What should that discussion look like? The good news is these Bible verses weren't suddenly added to the Bible, and now we're discovering them, right? So they've been there all along. Jesus himself backed up that all of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is inspired from God, trustworthy, authoritative, everything. So the Bible itself is credible, and so what we, we're not then doing is 
we can misunderstand it. And so our job, our role is in today's world, we have to put more effort into looking at these difficult questions. There are responses. And again, that's the good news. But so many churches and Christians have never looked at these things. I mean, Timothy and you guys are into apologetics. And for years, you know, we were answering a lot of different questions, you know, the resurrection, you know, some of the allegedly contradictory passages in the resurrection account, whatever it might be. You don't hear those questions as much anymore as you do these. These are the ones that are surfacing up more consistently. And so I don't say it's a, a simple answer, but we just have to be good leaders and be teaching parents to start going into this at an earlier age, elementary school, junior high school, high school, and respond by doing adequate study and teaching about it, teaching that there are answers. I was at Scottsdale Bible a couple months ago. I was teaching with their, uh, their interns and their youth staff, and their youth guy did a series called TikTok Theology. And he went and took, I forget how many weeks it was, you know, six or 10 weeks or something, of what are the big TikTok videos that are out there trying to disprove faith a lot of these issues, and he did a teaching series on it. That's the kind of thing that I believe we have to do, is be proactively now, we're actually behind, but to teach what to do with these things. And there are answers. That's the maddening part. When you watch TikTok and you see all these things, I'm like, no, like, wait a minute, that's false. There's answers to these things. But they sure sound credible hearing just the isolated bits. Yep. Timothy and I have talked several times about early apologetics and how the earliest apologists really were about the business of clarifying all of these bad ideas, bad rumors, misunderstandings of the faith that were whirling around in the early Roman culture. And so many times we talk about the parallels that we see or the similarities that we see between early church context and kind of the context and the cultural moment that we're going into. And that's just, that's another one. Like so much of apologetics right now is being prepared, being able, and then stepping into the conversation when the opportunity is there of just clearing up misunderstandings. As simple as that. And you have to be listening to what are the questions of the day. You know, not what are the questions of 10 years ago or 15 years ago or something. What are the current questions of the day what is happening, and I do think church leaders have a responsibility to be, not get obsessed with it, of course, but scanning TikTok from time to time, asking teenagers in college age, what are they hearing or the issues of questions and have a good pulse on, on what's out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really brings us to this question of science. And I think this is an important one because the way we answered the science question a generation ago is very different than how we ought to be anyway, answering it right now. Because I think a generation ago, I was in churches that had all these creation science, different presentations, and they were bombarded with that as if that is the answer to the notion of the Bible is disproved by science. And I think that we have a different type now of questions that people are asking that we have to listen to. We have to have a different type of response. I think we also need to have a broader understanding of what it means to say that God created the world. There's a lot of things going on in that. But as we look at today's time, not a generation ago, but now, what are the scientific issues and how do we respond when somebody says 
the science has disproven God. Where does this notion of this science Bible conflict come from, and how do we uniquely deal with it now in today's time? Well, we believe in a God that can intersect, intervene in science in the natural world and do anything supernatural he wants to. We believe in a man named Jesus was killed, died, body laying on this tomb, I don't know, like, you know, blood coagulating or whatever, like, and then God rose him from the dead. We see that Jesus physically walked upon the water. So God in science or going to, in what we think of science, are going to be in conflict when God comes into the picture to do things on supernaturally. But I don't hear people generally arguing about like, I don't believe Jesus walked on the water or those things. It always goes back to the creation account usually, because that's the mindset. That's the primary question. Do you believe the earth is 6,000 years old? All of these things. And so one, just to say, if you're a Christian, you know, you believe God can do anything he wants. God could create the world in six seconds or six billion years or whatever. So the sadness is we've been arguing about things, I think, that cause more problems than not today. So I think, does God intervene and do supernatural things that would conflict with most people saying science? Yeah, absolutely. He's God. But let's look at what the arguments are. It's usually about creation evolution. And if we can then show without getting into, you know, in the book, I talk about six or seven different viewpoints. I, I don't take a side. I just say there's, we have to have a humble approach to an ancient, this in, Holy and Spirit inspired ancient writings of the early chapters of Genesis to say, it's all the Bible study methods put into place and come up. There are some differing views that are actually very credible views. And they all believe in the, to use the word, inerrancy of scripture, Holy Spirit inspired everything. But to have a sense of humility to say, you know, it might be looked at a couple different ways. But we have to remember the ancient Israelites that God was speaking through Moses and writing this down so they could understand their history. They were coming out of a polytheistic culture, enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. There was no in writing scripture at the time. God's point of the questions the Egyptians had were more about is there one God or is there many? How do we worship this God? All of these kind of questions that they would have had, we have questions about, you know, what about macroevolution versus macroevolution? Those were not the questions that God was trying to speak to, to the original Israelites and recipients of what he was speaking Moses and communicating. And we have to remember that, or we're going to get so caught up in questions that the scriptures were not meant to answer. And we look at church history. We've got Augustine over here who believed that the six days are a metaphor, but he believed that the earth was actually created all in a single instant. <laughs> Talk about young earth. That's super young earth right there. He <laughs> believed that. And Augustine, all the way over to B.B. Warfield, who believed in an earth that was billions of years old and yet was one of the, the ones who was very clear about what inerrancy, inspiration are in the 19th century and early 20th century. Yet both of these are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving people who trusted the Bible as God's inerrant word, and yet one of them thinks it's all one instant, the other one thinks it's billions of years, and we're going to be in heaven with both of them. And so we have to have a theology that will accommodate that. And it's important for us as we deal with these scientific issues that we recognize that breadth in the communion of saints that we have. Yeah, and I say, I don't think Christians today 
have the luxury of even some of the inner battles that we used to focus on, you know, like say the creation evolution one, there's some with some, you know, there can be so much like heated, well, you're not taking the scripture seriously. There are definitely things, sexual ethics, all types of different things that it's pretty darn clear in scripture about things, ones that are then not, we shouldn't be battling each other. We need to be linking arms with each other. You know, you're a young earth, you're a, uh, an old earth, link arms because we're in, not in the period where we can have these inner battles anymore. We're on the same team. You know, if you're a Yankee fan, you may have differences of who should be up fourth or fifth and have inner battles about it. But we're still the Yankees and the Yankees that have to, Bible believing Christians have to be linked more and stop arguing about those things because we're, I don't know, I'm a little off topic here, but it's sad when that happens within our own circle. You definitely lost me when you use Bible-believing Christians and Yankees uh, in yeah. the same sentence. I just couldn't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, you see Yankee fans that, or whatever sports team, they'll have little discrepancy you know, like, and little like, fun arguments, but you're still together. Like, we're, after, we're against the Red Sox, right? But And I just think with Christianity, and the, we don't have that luxury anymore to have battles and pointing things out like, we're in a pretty serious time period in America. I'm talking about America, you know, that we got to really be together on these things. I remember one of the more heated conversations I had with a fellow brother in Christ was on this topic, this creation topic, and we were both getting heated for different reasons. He was pressing in hard on, hey, the language demands this particular reading of Genesis and creation. And I wasn't arguing for a position. I was just really taken aback by that particular comment. We just have to be, I don't say picking our battles within our own Christian faith, but there's an urgency of what we have to do. But that's why, again, coming back to these topics of slavery, anti-women, violence, these are the topics too that are surfacing a lot. You know, and younger Christians, they don't want to be known as hateful or ignorant or I worship a bloodthirsty God. I didn't even think about that. And there's putting more and more pressure on people. Then you know what? I can either have another form of Christianity, and that's when I view the Bible differently. And then that's really not Christian really. And it and I think it does lead to another gospel because the atonement eventually is removed. Everything almost, it's really fascinating. When you really play it out, it almost eventually comes down to, was the atonement necessary and would God have used blood on the cross? And that's the heart of the gospel. And that ultimately is what ending up being. So I, I really think there's an energy, and plane, if you know me, I'm saying this, like I'm not crazy. And, you know, for me to say this in my history of ministry and things, I do think there's a, even an evil an energy that's accelerating this with the uses of technology and things to confuse people, deceive people, and bring younger people, again, all ages, but into deception about the heart of the gospel. These are side issues, slavery. They're all important issues, slavery, anti-women, but that's where it's all going with things. Gosh, Dan, we're even, <laughs> not only deception, but I mean, these very things bring division within our ranks, within the family of God. And that's that's really hard to see. Yeah. And the book is, as, as you guys do, everything is about if we can understand basic Bible hermeneutics and principles for average people to understand scripture, 
I highlight some of the ones about slavery and anti-women and violence to show examples, but it's the hope that there's 20 other ones we could look at as well. But if you apply the same biblical principles to how you're looking at the Bible and understanding what the Bible is, it changes everything. And then when a young person hears something like, what about the verse in 1 Corinthians where it says, women be silent. It's a disgrace for women to speak in church. You pull that verse out, slap it with a meme with a woman with her mouth taped shut. It's shocking in an understandable Me Too culture and everything like, oh my goodness, or strange verses. You hypocritical Christians, you eat shrimp, don't you? And then seeing, look, your scriptures say in Leviticus, do not eat you know, shellfish, shrimp. Have you eaten shrimp? Yes, you hypocrites. You pick and choose Bible verses. And what a weird God. Why does God care more about you not eating shrimp than slavery or people starving around the world? Why is he so focused on shrimp? What kind of strange God would even have these strange commands about planting to different types of crops side by side and things? Your God's so bizarre. Now, say those two quick examples. They have answers. You know, like I'm sure he's devoted programs to this. The women's one is not just a blanket, cut and paste, a black and white. Women be home, be silent in the church. It's a disgrace for you to speak up, go home and ask you. Right. Three chapters earlier in First Corinthians, Paul's encouraging women to speak up and pray and prophesy. So it's more than just don't talk. You got to look, you know, that's a whole topic in itself. But you'll read, okay, Paul couldn't have possibly been meaning just women be quiet, tape your mouth shut. But it looks like that from just the Bible verse or the shrimp and you know, all the other strange Levitical laws. What were the Levitical laws? Who were they written to? And they would have known why. The context of all the Levitical laws were Israel's coming out of Egypt into a, another land where there's all types of other faiths and different gods that they're worshiping. And all of these strange sounding rules were for God giving distinction so that they wouldn't be repeating usually worship practices of the surrounding people groups, right? And when you look at that, then you'll see, oh, there's much more going on than these strange sounding things. But it's like us in America today, there's laws that were written in... Uh, I tried to look up like on Snopes to make sure all these were true. You know, there's laws that'll say in Arizona in 1925, a law was put in place that is still in law books, according to an attorney in Arizona that I saw that he was posting these up kind of as a joke. But he said, there's a law. It's illegal to keep a donkey in a bathtub, right? You read that law and you go like, what a strange, bizarre thing. Like that's legal in America. It's still in our law books. So then you have to go back, like, what was going on? There was actually some sort of river flood that happened. A donkey would be sleeping in some bathtub by some farmer back then, like farmer gym or something. The tub got stuck in a big mud basin, and they had such a hard time getting it out. They said, farmer gym, you can't keep your donkey there anymore. And so they made a law, right? If you were back then, like, you hear that law, don't keep a donkey in a bathtub. Like, oh, yeah, farmer gym, right? But today... We hear that, like, what a strange thing. And that's what it's like with the scriptures. You've got to go back and look what was going on to understand what sounds very strange to us wouldn't have been as strange sounding to them. But it certainly makes a great meme pulling things out or quoting these verses and then calling Christians hypocrites. You're not obeying scripture. Yeah, it's like soundbite warfare. So when you're sitting in the barber chair and you're a barber, a vocal non-believer, says something like how weird or how crazy you are for 
believing the Bible and what it says, having this view of scripture. What's your answer to that accusation that it's crazy to trust the Bible as God's word? Well, it's always saying like every apologetic eventually goes back to also, what is the Bible? Because everything we believe comes out of scripture, right? So it is, why is the scriptures trusted over the Quran or other types of religious writings or anything? And so ultimately it comes down to an apologetic of, I wasn't raised in a church. I had no upbringing of what scripture is or isn't. And then when I first was was interested, and I still think it was God drawing him to me because I had no bottom out experience or nothing. I was just very intrigued when I got into college. Is Christianity the, the true religion out there? I was kind of shocked when I heard that they were from a little pamphlet I read, like there's only one way to God through Jesus. And like, I had no idea that I thought it was like, well, religions are okay. But I then say like, where did this Bible come from? Because Christians get their sources from here. And I went, my beginning and entry into faith was, is this scriptures credible? Because I need to know where did it come from? Why should I trust this over the Book of Mormon or any other religious writings that are out there? What makes this? And so that is really, really important. So in my, with my barber, I will go into, or anyone asks, like, where did the scriptures come from? Why do I trust this as being from God? And then if it's true, then I want to follow what God leaves us because it's in the scriptures. So I say, hey, there's a great book by Timothy Paul Jones on why trust the Bible that we actually did use in my seminary class. I think I emailed you about that. That's really, imp- that's underneath in the question. When I was in college trying to figure things out, I walked in one time to my, where I lived and my friends were there and they got all quiet. And I'm like, what, what's going on? And I could tell they're talking about me and they weren't Christians. And they're like, Dan, we're concerned about you. And it ended up being like an unplanned intervention because they saw me getting a Bible and some other books. And they were saying like, we're worried that, you know, at the time that all of the end times rapture stuff is real big. And, you know, you're, because they're waiting for Armageddon and we're afraid you're going to become like that. Are you going to lose your creativity? And eventually it's kind of like you're joining a cult. You believe in a dead man that came back to life. It's kind of like a cult sounding thing. And they were asking me, they're saying this out of concern. It wasn't a, an attack, it was a concern that I'd be joining a cult, right? Because I believe in a dead man that rose again from the uh, back to the And I'm like, are they right? Right? People in cults don't realize they're in cults or they wouldn't get into it, right? So I had to say like, how do I know they're not right? And then it came down to where'd this thing come from? Because this is where we're getting this information. So back to it, an apologetic for the Bible is one of the most important things I think we should be teaching how to read the Bible, Bible study methods is critical today. So really important for church leaders and parents and grandparents to be able to to know and even have basic answers about slavery and all of these things. They don't have to be scholars, but at least basic answers. So grandma, is there slavery really in the Bible? And then she'd be like, well, I don't know, you know, or then the kids going like, grandma doesn't really know, does she? I learned this on TikTok. And like they said on TikTok, your parents probably don't know, see, and at least have some of those basics. What do you see as the strongest reason for somebody to place their faith in Jesus? If you're looking for a place to start, you think this is the strongest thing. This is what I want to help somebody understand. What do you see as that one strongest reason for somebody to put their faith in Jesus? Yeah, I mean, as you know, evangelistic conversations vary depending on the person. So like my barber, 
who had kind of a little Roman Catholic upbringing a little bit, like now he does it like my starting point or my discussion with him might be different than someone coming from Buddhism or just an agnostic or maybe an atheist. So it, it depends on the person. But ultimately, the two things are an apologetic nobody can argue with is life change and the peace that you get from knowing Jesus and direction. However, and you saw Paul, what he gave his testimony three times, you know, about this. But the difference today is we can go on television late night or I guess all time now and, you know, and see like, here's a mop. This new mop has changed my life, you know, or you see this from almost anything today, you know. Now that I've deconstructed my faith, I have so much peace and harmony with the world. So just your personal story is subjective today because everybody's life is being changed by something. That was a lot of Christian testimonial. Now, it's still true, but for me also. And then when I was examining, like, what is true? Where did we come from? What is our purpose? Is there God? Belief in Jesus and the entire storyline of the Bible answers all of these things that I don't think any other faith does. And the other part is that then my life has changed as a result. But I say it's kind of a combo of why knowing Jesus does give you peace and life purpose and explains our origins. And then it's changed my life as a result. But here's the difference. We can have, I keep holding it up, this can be scrutinized, the scriptures I'm holding up, can be scrutinized and held to tests and to see if it's really from God. And you can have confidence that the scriptures over all of the scrutiny over all of the years holds to the test that it's God's inspired words for direction for how life makes sense. Thank you so much for joining us today. Dan Kimball's book is How Not to Read the Bible, and I really do want to recommend it. It's from Zondervan. I recommend you go out, grab that book, and use that not only for yourself, but give it to somebody else. If you have somebody who's struggling to believe the Bible, struggling to trust the Bible, hand them this book. Help them to understand that you are recognizing as a Christian— that there are ways the Bible has been misused. You're recognizing that there's strange things in the Bible and you're owning that, but you're also offering an answer to your friend who's struggling to trust in what the Bible has to say on this. If you want to learn more about Dan Kimball, go to dankimball.com. That's Dan, K-I-M-B-A-L-L.com, dankimball.com. And thank you so much for having joined us today. It's been great to talk with you, Dan. Yeah, thank you. And I, we could spend an hour on this. Theological education for church leaders is more important than ever. I think the church is focused so much on music and bands and parking lots, which is needed. But there's so many people that have joined church staffs, and they don't have the theological education. They have communication skills. They might be good music leaders. But these questions are what we have to be training people. So thank you for the work that you do. And your writings and this podcast and, and things like that. So we're in it together. So thank you. Well, I'd like to thank you all for coming this week. The collection boxes are at the end of the congregational hall. Hope to see you next Sunday afternoon, 3.30 next week. Cheerio. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're interested in supporting the Apologetics Podcast, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. To listen to more episodes or to learn more about the two of us, take a look at our website at 
theapologeticspodcast.com. Also, if you're interested in learning more about apologetics, ministry, and leadership in urban contexts, you might enjoy the Urban Ministry Podcast. Go to urban.sbts.edu to learn more about this podcast. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. My co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on the next exciting episode of The Apologetics Podcast. Podcast.